Welcome to The Fight with Teddy Atlas. I'm Rob Moore. Sorry, guys. No Ken this week. He'll be back next week, thankfully, and I'll be behind the camera where I belong. Um, For those who have asked, Ken is alive. He is doing well, and he's looking forward to being back on the show soon. Uh, Today's episode, we're going to be picking back up where we left off with the Q&A session from last week. A lot of great questions came in. We wanted to get to all of them. So we broke this into, or we broke that one up into two episodes. Today's we'll cover off on the questions, what advice Teddy would give to an amateur fighter before their first bout, who the most intimidating boxer of all time is in Teddy's mind, whether or not Teddy agrees with Max Kellerman's suggestion for a super heavyweight division in addition to a heavyweight division, who the best non-American fighter of all time is in Teddy's eyes, and finally, who the most underrated fighter of all time is in Teddy's eyes. Awesome questions. Thanks for sending those in, guys. Um, Before we jump into things, I just want to quickly highlight the fact that Teddy's uh, COVID-19 test results came back negative, thankfully. If you recall from last week, he had a bad cough and was just feeling under the weather. So uh, with an abundance of caution, he got tested. Great news that those results came back negative. He's doing well. So all good on that front. Um, finally, before diving in, I just want to give a quick shout out to Teddy's audiobook, Atlas from the streets to the ring, a son's struggle to become a man. Cannot recommend this one enough. It's really terrific. The book and the audiobook. I actually read the book a couple years ago when I was first starting to work with Teddy and helped him in securing the audio rights to it because I was so impressed by it and I'm obsessed with audiobooks. Uh, we spent this past summer with Teddy reading the, uh, the book and recording the audio version of that and we're excited to have that now out in the wild. Do check it out. It's really terrific. Uh, if you've read the book, the audiobook has some additional material. It's got conversations between chapters with Teddy where he shares additional insight on some of the stuff that was covered in the previous chapter and also brings the reader up to speed on uh, what he's been up to over the past decade since the book came out. So it's really good stuff. It's available on iTunes and also on Audible. If you check the show notes out, you'll see a link to a 30-day free trial of Audible where you'll also get the book for free. So definitely check that out. If you've bought the book and if you've listened to it, do leave it a review. That helps a lot. Um, Thanks for being with us. And without further ado, today's episode. The next question in is from uh, from Twitter, from Vincent uh, Pelletier. And the question is, what advice would you give to a boxer before his first amateur fight? Uh, he also mentions, love your book, by the way. Uh, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, first thing I would tell a fighter, since you love my book, is read my book before you fight. <laughs> or listen. How's that for promotional uh, savvy and, and trying to sell books? The thing that I would tell him is to remember that the other guy the guy that he's fighting is feeling the same way as he feels because you get into the solitary universe in your first fight where you've never been through that before, where you think you're the only guy whose heart is beating like this. You think that you're the only one nervous. You think you're the only one scared. Um, and if you look at him, he looks normal. 
guess what? He looks at you, you look normal because you're both projecting what you want to project. You're not letting each other know how scared you are, how nervous you are, how worried you are. So that's what I would tell him. That's the most important thing is that the other guy feels the same way you feel. He's just as nervous as you are. So control your feelings, go in there, understand that, and do what you were trained and you have trained to do, and we're going to be okay. Love it. Um, I actually have a, a, a funny anecdote that uh, comes from, from Ken and um, something that I just remember him telling me, I, I'm not someone where I've had any uh, amateur boxing experience. I, I wrestled a bit in high school, so uh, I'm familiar with the sport in that sense of the kind of one-on-one aspect. But uh, I'll never forget, Ken told me one time uh, when he was boxing, when he really first moved to New York, he was doing some amateur boxing at uh, the New York Athletic Club. And he said... Um, you know, he's, he's waiting to go out to, to fight in this, in this match and he's in the kind of corridor leading out and to himself, he's thinking, basically praying that the fire alarm goes off or something that the fight gets canceled because he's just terrified. And the other fighter who he was having these feelings about being, you know, uh, apprehensive and nervous, um, he heard that fighter's uh, kind of coach or mentor saying, uh, don't be scared of this guy. Uh, I know his accent. He sounds like he's like, uh, you know, a tough guy from Boston. And Ken overhearing that immediately thought, oh, my God, this guy's thinking exactly like I am. And he's actually afraid of me. And it like dawned on him that, you know, uh, the other person on the other side, your opposition has those same feelings. So it's just a, a funny, funny tie that, that it made me think of it when you, when you brought that up. Yeah. I mean, it's the mental side, you know, it's controlling your fear. That's the most difficult part of this game. The most important part, we're all human. We all, you know, have those emotions. A lot of people, they wrongly think that a fighter, even a fighter at a developed stage, is devoid of those doubts, devoid of those feelings, devoid of those fears. No, they're not. No, they're not. They're, they're in control of them. They've become comfortable with them. They've learned how to govern them where they don't govern them. They've learned how to, t- to tame the lion where the lion works for them. But... uh they have those feelings because they're they're here born the same way as we all are. You know, nature put it there for all of us for a reason. You know, unless we came on a spaceship, we all have those feelings. And that's the most important thing that you can explain to a to a young fighter. And tell Kenny shouldn't have worried about that guy he was fighting anyway. <laughs> it was probably the CEO of Woolworths or something. All right. Exactly. Ken, come on. Think about it. <laughs> in, the, in the New York sports club. I mean, it was probably the, the CEO of AT&T. I mean, the, the guy can't fight. 
That's I think that's what was so funny to Ken too is uh, there were the guy was commenting on his Boston accent saying you know uh, don't be don't be scared of this guy he's, he, you know he sounds like he's real tough from Boston with that Boston accent and Ken said he had two thoughts one was I have a Boston accent and the other was uh, oh this guy's got the same feelings as me uh, too funny all right so the next question here coming through from Twitter from Ken Shiro Shasha. Sorry, uh, I'm sure I'm butchering that, but Ken Shiro Shasha. Um, His question is, what defines a great trainer? And then next, what defines a great student? So let's kick it off with the what defines a great trainer, Teddy. A great trainer, you have to have knowledge, obviously, uh, practical experience, the ability to transfer your knowledge to the fighter. You know, he, he must be a teacher. Um, must understand, obviously, fundamentals and beyond. He must have a thorough understanding, again, gained from real experience of the mental terrain that a fighter exists in and be able to guide them through that mental terrain. Uh, he's got to... He's got to be able to as we touched on in one of the earlier questions, take what he knows and be able to give it to somebody else and be able to adjust. To me, you'll take a, if you're going to be a great trainer, not everybody, you have to have your fundamental beliefs, your core beliefs the nuts and bolts of the plan, of the ideas that give you success, that a fighter must have to be successful, the rules, the rudiments, the, the proper understanding. For me, control distance, moving at your last punch, you know, covering after your punch, keeping your chin down, you know, not throwing punches from the wrong position. And you have to have patience. You have to be able to go over and over. Like Cush used to tell me when I was in the gym as a young trainer, he used to say, listen, it's not enough to tell them what they're doing wrong. You got to show it to them and you got to show them the right way. And then you got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it with them until they can't do it wrong if they wanted to do it wrong. That's what it takes. That's terrific. And, uh, the next part of that question is what defines a great student to you, Teddy? A great student must have a desire to learn, succeed, must be smart to understand what is being taught and why. Must be able, there goes those bells again. They must be able to handle constructive criticism and be honest with themselves when they're avoiding something. In other words, be able to really understand as we all, as people, human beings in life, we get to places where we want to avoid something. In other words, we're making excuses. And 
they have to recognize that. They have to recognize that when they don't want to go an extra round, it's not because they're tired. That's an excuse. It's because they want to avoid the difficulty of what is entailed in going another round. That it's difficult. And they have to have the capacity with your help as a teacher to be honest with themselves in those dimensions, in those areas. Otherwise, you can't help them. They have to be able to have discipline in their life. They have to have the capacity, which can be learned and developed, to control their emotions, to be able to make proper decisions and choices in the ring, despite of how they might feel. They have to learn to become calm in an uncalm environment. They have to be able to develop themselves mentally every bit as much and more so and put in the work to do that as they do to develop themselves physically and technically. Because that is what drives that car. This. This is the army. This is the general. And they must learn that. The body has little say here. It's the mind. Even when the body doesn't want to go anymore, it's the mind that's saying it's all right not to go. And it's also the mind that will say, you will go. They must learn those things and they must as I said a minute ago recognize the difference between avoiding something that they believe there's credence or a reason to versus that they're avoiding it because they just make up an excuse because it's difficult to face. Because excuses are, in my business, in our business, they're like germs. If you leave them around, they're gonna make you sick. You gotta kill them. You gotta get rid of them. And that means facing what you gotta face. Putting a light on what you gotta face. Yeah. Not, not easy to do. Listen, there's a reason Kush used to say to me, the hardest part of my business with a fighter is the waiting before the fight. He used to say, if it wasn't for that part, there'd be more fighting. because the physical part is, you know, one thing. Um, people like physicality. They like to do physical things that sometimes challenge them, makes them feel healthier, <coughs> stronger, better. But the mental part, the fear, the apprehension, the anxiety, the, the unknown, the imagination. The imagination can destroy you. It's like ninjas coming over the wall. And he used to say, if it wasn't for this part, the waiting part, there'd be more fighters because the other part they can tolerate and they enjoy. They enjoy feeling good. They enjoy, 
you know, having their hands raised. They enjoy being noticed and recognized. They enjoy how special they feel. It's the waiting. It's the the unknown that for a young fighter is the most difficult. I remember one time I was taking kids down from Catskill to a smoker, uh, two and a half hour drive down to the Bronx to a smoker in the Bronx in the South Bronx, Westchester Avenue, the Apollo Club. Nelson Cuevas, God bless him, he was the proprietor there. And I would bring the kids down there to get experience, to get fights when they were ready. And we were driving down and we got a flat tire. And I pulled over on the side, made sure the kids were safe. We were on the New York State Thruway, got to a safe place, and I started changing the tire. And I could see all the kids were disappointed. They were wishing I didn't have a tire. But I knew, so you gotta know that as a trainer, you gotta know what they're thinking. They were disappointed I had a tire. And when I got in the car, I felt as a teacher, as their guide, as their trainer, as their surrogate parent in some ways, looking out for them, I had to talk to them. And I said to them, you guys wishing I didn't have a tire. And, well, no, no, Teddy. <laughs> no. We weren't wishing that. I said, okay. Just remember. It's normal to have these fears and these doubts and these apprehensions that the guys you're going to fight have the same thing. They're going through the same thing. They have the same doubts, the same nerves. And remember, you have to go through it because you can't become a fighter if you don't. And someday you won't feel this way. Yeah, you'll be nervous, but you wouldn't be normal. But you, you'll be able to control it. You'll be familiar. It'll be your friend instead of the enemy. You know what it is. And you'll be able to keep it in its place and use it. But you got to go through this to get there. And one day, years later, one of those fighters said to me, he got to that place finally, you know, 50 fights later. Yeah. And he said he was a good fighter, good amateur, champion, champion. And he said to me, Teddy, remember... Remember that time when we were driving down, you know, a few years ago? I said, yeah, of course. He says, you were right. <laughs> I said, and I, I, I didn't know exactly what he was. I said, right? He goes, I was wishing you didn't have a tire. I was like, damn it. He's got a spare. All these tell a lot to the people out there that, that are not familiar with, <coughs> excuse me, what this sport is truly about. Yeah. hundred percent. Not just about power and speed. Yeah. It's also one of those things too, where you talk about it a lot where, you know, you're speaking about fights and, and boxing, but I'm sure the listeners can relate it to other things, whether it be, you know, a meeting that you think is about to be canceled, whether it be like a job interview or something like that. And you get this moment of relief, like even if it was, you know, an interview that could, potentially impact to you very positively um if it's getting moved or canceled there's this you know sigh of relief but um 
ultimately you kind of have to have to push through that fear to to uh, get to a better place and also so that you know who knows in a few years you might always wonder if you had actually taken that meeting or if you had uh, followed through on what you were planning on doing uh, the impact it could have had and uh, to not have that regret is is you know more important than losing or not not performing well but actually having gone through the act of doing it I'll tell you a story I was a pretty good you know I had a good reputation I was a very young trainer I left cars I was down at Gleese gym training fighters People were coming to me to meet fighters. And um, if I dare say myself, I was doing a good job. And I was in a place, I wasn't making a lot of money, but I, was, I had a good reputation and I made fighters better. And um, I believe so. And other people, more importantly, believe so. And I was doing good. But I didn't have that big name fighter. You know, I had fighters that were... I I always felt that I took a fighter that was maybe a a six from a one to ten, ten being the best, a six or a seven. That's what I was getting, and I was making them into eights and nines. And I, I've anyway, I was part of being a good trainer. I thought, and I was comfortable, I guess. Although I always wanted to get, I wasn't. I wanted to get to that place to have world champions. And then the day came where somebody offered me a fighter named Simon Brown, welterweight champ of the world, one of the best fighters. At that time, they didn't do pound for pound, but he was up there. And here it is. No brainer. You say yes. No brainer. They come to you. You got to that place. You're going to get you a little bit of a next step. And um, of course, you're going to say yes. I didn't say yes right away. I was hesitant because I had been comfortable, even though I didn't get to where I wanted. And it was easy when it wasn't there. When it wasn't there, it was easy to think about, I got to have champs. I got to have the best. I got, And then all of a sudden, it's there. It's like, well, now it's not so easy. I got to deal with what comes with it. The fear, the responsibility. What if I screw this up? What if yeah. this fighter was who's a good fighter, who's a world champion, welterweight champion of the world. What if, what if I screw it up? I mean, over here, I'm comfortable. I'm not, I don't have that pressure. I don't have those thoughts. I don't have to worry about that. Now I got to worry about it. Of course, it's what I need. Of course, it's what I want, what I've always wanted. But now it's there. Are you ready to handle it? And I was like thinking about it. And then I finally... I had a talk with myself and I said, hey, this is what you wanted since you were a kid. This is what you've been working. You've been in the gym all day long, Monday to Sunday up in Catskill for eight years, training amateurs at night, pros during the day, making no money, doing all this for all those years. And now you're doing this down here in New York. This, of, hey, of course there's a risk. There's supposed to be a risk because there's a reward that's attached to the risk. But of course there's a risk that, that if he doesn't look as good as he's well, people are going to come after you. People are going to say that you're not as good. Are you up to that risk? Because without that risk, you ain't getting what you've been dreaming about getting. You ain't getting it. 
And then boom, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm, I, I'll train him. And I was with him for five title defenses. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrific. It is, it is one of those things where you, um, it can be scary to, to make that leap and make that commitment, but um, that's, that's what's required if you want to advance. Um, the next question comes in from Twitter. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry. Next question comes in from Instagram. Uh, another incredibly difficult username to pronounce here. It's Jatkink Suthar. Jatkink Suthar. Um, question is, who is the most intimidating, scariest boxer of all time? Sonny Liston. You know... Uh, Tyson copied his intimidating ways. You know, a lot of people might think it came from Duran, but it came from, he's going to be honest about it, it came from Liston. Uh, from his cold, dark, unforgiving, empty eyes to his great power and ability to fight. He is uh, very underrated as to how good he was. You know, we know he was an intimidating figure, but he was a damn good fighter. But because of his problems and because he didn't keep the title long, because of the Ali fights, uh, because of his connections to the underworld and all that stuff, he didn't have the longevity that he could have had. Maybe, but he's an underrated fighter. He's a, he was a tremendous fighter besides being intimidated. He could fight and he could punch, but he was scary as hell. He was the original boogeyman, Freddy Krueger. Oh my God, Rob, this is a guy that he knew how to do it. He knew how to do it. Like Michelangelo knew how to paint, this guy knew how to intimidate. You know, he uh, he knew that less was more in the true sense that he would just look at you and not say a word, scare the bejesus out of people, because he's a big hulking guy and he looked at you and it was kind of like in a movie, like where the scariest horror movies are the ones where there's an ominous moment and there's no noise. That That is more freaky than anything. There's no, yeah, because exactly. the anticipation of what's going what's gonna to happen, because you know it's an ominous situation. It's a dangerous, scary, there's something lurking, but you don't know what it is. And, it, and you don't know when it's going to show itself. He, he knew how to play it. He knew that people knew about his jail time and his, his connections to the people that he was connected to, that he even let that scare people. He understood that that could scare people. He, but the most important thing, he backed it up. He backed it up. Yeah. When you got in the ring, you said, oh, I, I, I had a damn good reason to be scared. Because when he hit you with that phone pole jab, that tree stump jab that felt like a 
bag of bricks, you said to yourself, oh my God, if his jab feels like this, what are the other punches going to feel like? This guy, I think of Tyson, and I'm not trying to be mean here, but I think that if Tyson had to fight Sonny Liston, he, uh, he might have gotten a stomach virus. I mean, I'll say it nicely. I mean, he was, he was the real McCoy. Sonny Liston, you know, we know Duran had those dark eyes and there were others, but Liston had the full package, the full kit of how to intimidate. Yeah, I remember, uh, I remember us talking about Liston and Tyson as a, a mythical matchup in an episode we did a few weeks back or a few months back now. So uh, I thought I might know where you were going with that one. All right, this next question uh, came in by email. It's actually from the two guys who support us with uh, our social media from the, the Fight WTA uh, social media handles. Um, it's from Dan Catino and Giacomo. Um, question is, Teddy, do you agree with Max Kellerman's opinion that there should be a super heavyweight class like in the Olympics? No. Hey, Max. You know I love you. But you know I disagree with you a lot of times. And I, this is no different. No, 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 no. I mean, if you continue to change the rules in football anymore, it's a tough sport like boxing. I understand the danger factor. I understand the need to make things safer as much as you can. I get it, and I'm with you. But if you go too far, it's not going to be football anymore. You're not going to allow these great athletes that people pay to watch perform, use their great abilities, their great athleticism, their great thing, the, what they've spent their whole life building, their arsenal of gifts. They will be nil and void. They won't be allowed to be used anymore. You won't be able to hit a guy. You won't be able to tackle a guy this way, that way. And again, let's make it safer. But let's not lose the game. Let's not lose the sport. Um, it is part of the reason not only we watch, but we are challenged that you can find a way to keep from being on fire in a place of fire. That you can run through fire, you can go around fire, that you can do things with it. You're talking about boxing. First of all, the athletes in all sports, I get it that they become faster, stronger, bigger. I understand that. But I also understand there's a history here that a lot of people might not think about. But how about back in the 40s, when 30s, 40s, whatever it was, 
maybe it was the 30s, when Primo Canero was heavyweight champ of the world, you know, I know for the most part the heavyweights were smaller back then. I get it. He wasn't. He was 260 pounds. Max Bear was about 200 pounds, 60 pound difference, somewhere in that neighborhood. Don't hold me to it. But it was a big disparity back then. The smaller guy knocked him out. Uh, how many times did Holyfield beat bigger guys? I mean, you had the, the new prototype heavyweights with Lennox Lewis and Klitschko. I mean, Lennox Lewis beat the big Klitschko. All these big guys. Riddick Bowe was a big, powerful heavyweight. Evander Holyfield beat Bo. I know he lost to him, but he beat Bo. He fought a draw with Lewis. I know the decision, a lot of people didn't like it, whatever, but he was competitive with a big, big guy. Holyfield was a small guy, but he found a way. He found a way to even a playing field. Part of this sport, part of the enticement to watch the sport is to watch somebody find a way. To somebody, the regular guy, the guy who's not born big and strong with those genetics, the guy who's just a regular guy, an average guy, to give him a chance to be better than average. To give him a chance to be special. How many times we talk about the size advantage, but what about the advantage of the smaller guy being faster, smarter, quicker, slicker, more determined? What about that advantage? Is it all just about the size? You know, I know that, again, they've gotten bigger. But through the history of this sport, if you go back, there were always catchweight fights. There's a fighter that, unfortunately, you guys, are, most of you are not going to know this name, and it's sad. Because you probably know the names of some of the great baseball players, like Ty Cobb. You know, you go back, you know, all the way back to some of those great baseball players, you know, Obviously, Hank Aaron, that's not that far back. Willie Mays, but that's back a little bit. But you go back, you know, Babe Ruth, you know, Luke Gehrig. You know, you know, you know all the names because the sport does a better job of promoting itself, of teaching the history and carrying on the history of those sports. Boxing doesn't have that. doesn't really have a... Uh, PR department, you know, it's got all this, it's separated quarters and separated power bases and promoters, you know, but it's been there longer than any other sport. And you, you have a, a, a unfortunately, the, the names of some of the great fighters from way back guy that I'm about to name 
you have no ability to really understand how great this guy. His name was Sam Langford. And back in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, they fought a lot of catchweights. Well, Sam Langford fought from lightweight to heavyweight. I know the heavyweights were smaller, and he beat them. Why? He was too small, right? No. He was too fast. He was too tough. He was too smart. He used guile. He used the ability to adapt, to think, IQ. You know, he used his experience. He used every trick that he learned over the years in a book. He outmaneuvered guys. He didn't have to outweigh them or outslug them or outstrength them. The sport has always had that. There's always been a, a certain magic to it that you go to a fight and you see the underdog win. You see the guy that he's an underdog with talent, maybe not size, but he's the underdog. But while the other guy had the genetics to be born stronger and faster, the other guy didn't have that. But he had the opportunity that we all have, and he reminded you of that, that he had the ability to go out there and make himself better, to make himself harder, faster, quicker, smarter, that he, that he could, there was, a, there was a shopping place that you could shop. If you weren't born with those essentials, you could go shopping for them. You could go down the aisle, give me some determination, give me some motivation, give me some incentive, give me, give me uh, some mental toughness, give me some work ethic. I'll take a little of this, a little of that, put it all together. And you can make up for the things you weren't born with. You know, I have a saying that life's not fair. Sometimes it's not. But in boxing, if you're prepared, if you're willing to make yourself ready for that one night, trained hard enough, you dreamed hard enough, you you. You just drilled it into your head that you were going to be on top one day when your moment came. And then you get in the ring, in that squared circle. And on that night, as unfair as life has been, that you were the smaller guy, the weaker guy, the guy that got picked on, the guy that had leftover clothes, hand-me-down clothes, that people made fun at, they threw things at. That, that, you, that you came from the part of town or you spoke a certain way where people looked down on you. On that night, for 36 minutes, you could make life fair. You could even the playing field. That's what it's about. It's not about size. It's about overcoming ingenuity. It's about letting people still know that there's hopes in the world when they watch heavyweight boxing, that there's still hopes for the Davids in the world to beat the Goliaths. Everyone got a Goliath in their life. It doesn't have to be somebody that's got a fist. 
but it represents something that you're afraid of, something that's bigger than you, something that, that overwhelms you, something that you thought was better than you. Until that one day that you said, no, it's not going to be that. Me, the average guy, I'm going to be better than average. And what represented the ability to do that? What was the stage for all that? What was the performing platform for all that? The heavy weight. Not the super, not the cruiser, not the super duper. The one universal thing that everybody recognized. You didn't have to dress it up the way we dress things up now, Max. You didn't have to put sequins on it. You didn't have to you didn't have to get the strobe lights and the laser lights and you didn't have to have smoke coming up from the floor. You didn't have to dress it up. All you had to do was ladies and gentlemen for the heavyweight championship of the world. That's all you had to say. That's it. That's it for the chance to show that there ain't nobody bigger than you tonight. That you will find a way. He ain't too big. I'm too fast. I'm too determined. What are you going to just erase that? Max, we don't have enough divisions. We don't have enough divisions, Max. Really? Are you bored? Are you bored, Max, that we need more divisions in this great sport? It hasn't been diminished enough, watered down enough. Can't we still trust something? Can't we still honor something? Can't we still have tradition to something? that we can still believe in for all the reasons I just said. Yeah, I'm, I'm for safety. I am. I am. But I also know the reality of where I live. The reality that the people that box, they know the risk of the sport. They take that risk for a reason. To be great. Because without risk, you can't be great. You can't be special. You can't be heavyweight champ of the world, baby. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. So many divisions as it is, and there's just something that's so special about heavyweight champion of the world. You know, before we leave it, I, I gave a lot of good, um, I think, examples. Do any of you guys remember Max? Do any of you, and you know I love you, Max, but do any of you guys remember a fighter some years ago, Rob, a Russian fighter, he won a title. Uh, I think he had one of those titles. Valuev, he was like 300 pounds. I think his name was Valuev. Like 300 pounds. Whoever beat him, who beat him? The guy was 220 maybe, 210, 230. So 60, 70, 80 pound difference. I don't know what it was. You'll probably find it. But Whatever it was, what were we supposed to do? Make that a super, he was 300 pounds. Super duper booper uh, title fight? 
Yeah, I got him here. Uh, uh, Nikolay Valuev, and he was 331 pounds at seven feet tall. Oh, 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 oh. Don't go near him. Oh, my God. Somebody beat him. How yes. I guarantee you the guy was not 330 and seven foot. Yeah, so he he lost to uh Ruslan Chagev, who let's see uh let's see his height weight. Ruslan Chaglev or sorry, Chagev. Um he uh six one and he weighed 230. Yeah, 225 pounds. You got it. Yeah. How many pounds? You do the math there for me there, college kid. 100 pounds. 105 pounds. 105. Okay. Max, I rest my case. Don't ever, ever, ever come up with a silly idea like that again. Please. Please. All right. Next question from Wes Cartledge on Twitter. Who is the best non-American boxer of all time? I told you we got smart guys here. We do. Another tough question. Very tough. Because there's so many of them. They're not all American great fighters. It's a world sport. It's called world champion. It's a world sport. The world's big. Um, but you have to narrow it down and as big as it is, and you could come up with guys like Marcel Sedan, the great French middleweight that, uh, was really tremendous. Uh, there's a guy named Jimmy Wild, flyweight champion from Wales. Uh, there was, um, Ted Kidd Lewis, a welterweight from England. Didn't want to leave my beautiful brothers in England out. You know, you guys got good fighters. You started this whole thing with the Marcus of Queensberry rules, you know, more civilized. Uh, I mean, just to give you an example, let me, I think this is the first time I've publicly put on glasses on, so people, this is, I don't know if this is a historic moment, but this is a first. This is a first. Yes, I do need glasses sometimes. I try not to. We'll be reaching out to Lens Crafters as a uh, potential sponsor. Jimmy Wild, flyweight, uh, 150 fights, 98 knockouts. Lost three times. Not bad. Not bad. Ted Kid Lewis, welterweight from England, uh, 238 fights. Uh, Marcel Sedan, I said he was great. My pick? The best fighter, non-American boxer of all time. Carlos Monzon, middleweight from Argentina. I mean, this is a guy that I got to see him fight, you know, on television later in his career. I want to make sure I got this right. 
He was undefeated from 1964 to 1977. 13 years. Unbelievable. That's not bad. And middleweight. We know middleweight is one of the toughest divisions because you have a combination of speed, power, and finesse, and IQ, and having to have proper technique, not just with the heavyweights, where sometimes you might get away with more with power. But no, you have to have everything at middleweight. Everything. And I think his record was like 87, 3, and 9. But 13 years he went without losing. Unbelievable. This is a guy that his greatest trait, he had good size, good life. But his greatest trait for me was that you're always trying to get the other guy to fight your fight. You're always trying to keep the other guy in an uncomfortable place, Rob, where you don't let him get to a comfortable geography in the ring, where you use, you keep him where your strengths are always in the forefront and his is in the rearview mirror, that, that he doesn't have the, what he needs to be at his best, to use whatever his attributes are in the best way. In other words, make the guy fight your fight. Never fight his fight. I never saw anybody do it more consistently, more better than Monzone. He always made you uncomfortable. Yeah, he had tough fights. You know, he had those draws where, you know, he, he fought guys like Benny Briscoe, Russell Peltzers, uh, the great promoter from Philadelphia, Hall of Fame promoter, friend of mine. Uh, Benny Briscoe was his fighter. Benny Briscoe was a, was, was a monster too. Good puncher, great chin, bit of a plotter, but, but tough, solid guy. Fought everybody from Philadelphia. And uh, when they had the best middleweights back then. And he went to Argentina, Benny Briscoe, for the draw with Monzone. But for the most part, Monzone, you know, fought all those good middleweights, beat him, and usually got his way usually got his way to make the fight where it was more on his side of the turf than yours. He was, he was really, I, he was really something. He really, he really was. Um, I'm not going to go into his personal life. I'm o I only say that because there'll probably be someone out there because we have a lot of smart fans we got some wise guys. You get wise guys out there, Rob, that might say, yeah, but what, what kind of person? What? We're not talking about that. I don't know. I know that, that it was bad. You know, he went to jail uh, involved in a murder. I, I believe it was involved in the murder of his wife or a woman. Uh, I don't know all the details. I, I don't pretend to know. But I, but I am honest about it, that I do know that. Um, and then he died young, I believe, on a furlough, I believe, uh, coming back from jail. I believe, if my memory's right, he was given a furlough from prison, and he was coming back, and he got killed in a car accident, so whatever. But obviously... Uh, a sordid situation, 
an ugly situation, a bad situation, but that's we're, we're not we're talking only we're talking only about what kind of fighter he was. Yeah, and um, he was he was great, and maybe for me, maybe the greatest non-American. And like I said, there's a lot of competition, but for me, you can only if you can only pick one. That's my pick. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure a lot of the people listening will have to go back and look at some of his fights. I'm guessing some of them will be on YouTube too. Yeah, I heard about that thing, YouTube. It's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a hell of a thing. It's a, it really is. It's very interesting. Uh, next question. This is the uh, the last question for this round of the, the Q&As. Um, this one from Twitter, at uh, Steve Katsemi. Who do you think is the most underrated fighter of all time? Great question. Again, I want to tell you guys, great questions. We got smart fans. We don't allow dummies over here. Um, again, difficult because there's been this sport has been around longer than any other sport. You know, like I said, you go back to the eras of before the 1900s, and then the, and then in the 19 early 1900s, you had fighters that were, you know, fighting 40 rounds, 50 rounds, fighting to the finish. You know, uh, had a, like I said, 300 fights, 200 fights. I mean, there's an incredible history in this sport. Incredible people, incredible men, special men. So there's so many that don't get rated to the level they should be. I said earlier, Sonny Liston, you know, uh, as great as he was, he was champion of the world, but he's underrated. I'll tell you a weird one. It's not my answer, but a weird one is a guy, the only undefeated heavyweight to retire undefeated, Rocky Marciano. You know, how could he be underrated? He's underrated. People don't give him the credit that he deserves. You know, they said, oh, he beat old guys, Ezra Charles and Jersey Joe Walcott. First of all, Ezra Charles and Jersey Joe Walcott were two of the greatest fighters of all time in the freaking sport. And they were successful when they were older. That was just when they were at their prime. That's just when it happened to be that they were, they, they were still good when they were older, in their mid-30s. So, uh, he's, he, believe it or not, if it's possible to be underrated when you retire 49-0 and 0 and held the heavyweight title, he was, but but he's you know he gets his attention, he gets his credit, he gets his dues because he he you know people know him and he's on the list of greatest heavyweights. So you can't you can't say it in the sense that this is being asked. It's being asked in a way that it's someone that people don't value him, people don't know enough about him, people don't understand what he what he was and maybe what he could have been. And you know who it is for me? It's a non-American fighter from Hungary, communist country back in the days, Laszlo Papp. Rob, Laszlo Papp is one of only three people, he's one of them, so there's two others, to win three gold medals in three different Olympics. Um, you know, so maybe he's the greatest amateur of all time too. It's just incredible. He grew up, unlike us, in this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful free country that you can 
you can accomplish anything. You can accomplish anything that your dreams are large enough to accomplish. And your, your will is willing to back it up. Your, your work ethic and, and dedication and commitment is willing to back up your dreams. You can, you can get anywhere. When you were born in a communist country, back when it was communist, you couldn't do that. He, <laughs> the government controlled what you could do or what you were allowed to do to a certain extent. There was no professional boxing in the communist country back then, just like Soviet Union didn't used to have, you know, until the Soviet Union fell. So you could go only in the Olympics. So where normally one Olympics, I think he was 22 years old, his first Olympics he won, he would have turned pro. But no, he's just, you can't. So he goes to another Olympics, wins and dominates again. And during the Olympics when there were great fighters. I mean, I'm talking about the Olympics. Not that they're not still good, but uh, I mean, really. And he goes, and now he's 26, can't turn pro. You got to go to another Olympics. He wins again. What are you going to do? Got to win. He wins again. Now he's 31 years old. Now, finally, the government says, okay, 31 years old, Rob. Okay, you great fighter. You could turn pro, but not here in this country. You have to fight somewhere else in Europe, whether it was Austria which was close by, <coughs> I'm not sure, but it's in the books. So he went and he fought. 31 years old. He's undefeated. He's undefeated. He, he winds up being 27-0-2 as a pro. And he wins the European title when he's 36 years old. Being that he's not allowed to fight in the U.S., he can't, he can't win the world title because it's, yeah. it's in the United States. Finally, when he's 37 years old, he gets offered in the United States to fight Joey Giardello, the middleweight champ of the world. 37 years old. He's going to get a chance to fight for the world middleweight title. This great, we don't even know how great he could have been. And the government of the communist country would not let him fight. Oh, he said no, and that's it. Done. Close the books. So here's a guy who was maybe the greatest amateur of all time, three-time gold medal with, uh, medalist, right? And he he's not allowed to turn pro to 31. Fights some good fighters, beats everybody. 27-0-2 at, after turning pro way past his prime and he's never allowed to be to show us what he could have been as a pro that's underrated why because my god rob how good could he have been he might have been and you know i'm not known for you know hyperbole where i don't go and say someone's great unless i really 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 have what I think is the burden of proof to freaking say that. I, I care about what I say. 
This guy might have been one of the greatest fighters of all time. Yeah, I'll say it again for those out there that, that thinks that I was, uh, I burped or something. And, uh, yeah, I'll say it. He might have been the greatest, one of the greatest of all time if he was allowed, if he had been born in the right place and been allowed to turn pro after his first Olympics when he was 22. Who knows how freaking good Laszlo Pop could have been. Who knows? He, so I know there's a lot of great ones you can pick from and underrated because it's a great sport. I said that already. But you can't get much better than Laszlo Pap. I wrote a couple others down. Freddie Steele, uh, middleweight champ, 140 fights back in the 30s. He lost five. Uh, you know, he was pretty damn good too. Uh, a lot of, but he got to win the middleweight title. He got it. A lot of people don't know it. They don't give him credit for being what he was. So maybe he's underrated in that way. But for me, he at least got the middleweight title. He's in the record books. Laszlo Pop was never given that chance. All right, guys, that's it for today. Thanks for being with us. Next week, it will be Ken and Teddy, and I'll be behind the camera. Uh, thanks for uh, tuning in. And again, next week, it's going to be Teddy sharing custom auto stories, uh, talking about his relationship with Cuss, some of the lessons learned while working with him up in the Catskills. So that should be an awesome episode. Uh, before signing off, just want to give another quick shout out to Teddy's audiobook, Atlas from the Streets to the Ring A Son Struggle to Become a Man. Cannot recommend this one enough. It's really terrific. If you've read it, do check out the audio version. Teddy reading the book is really special and um, the in-between chapter conversations with Teddy provide additional insight and just brings us kind of brings the reader up to speed in what's transpired over the past decade and how Teddy currently sees things. So uh, do check that out uh, on iTunes or on Audible. Uh, check out the show notes for the Audible link where you can get a 30-day free trial of Audible and get the book for free. That's it for today. Take care, guys. I'm